Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs, and I am really glad to be here with you today. In the background is our sweet friend, Ellie Holcomb. Make sure you have her record, Red Sea Road. And when you're thinking about gifts coming up for Christmas, you guys, we're like holiday seasoning so hard right now. When you are getting gifts, I would highly suggest Red Sea Road. I think you will love it. I mean, also, you could always grab a copy of 100 Days to Brave, but whatever. I mean, it's your life. Live your life however you want. Hey, today's episode is brought to us by the CSB Bible translation. It's a really interesting new translation that Lifeway has between kind of the faithfulness of the original language and readability for a modern audience. It's really easy reading, but it's accurate. It's accessible. I totally love it. It's one that I and a lot of my friends will like feel confident teaching out of, but at the same time, people can read it in their own time. I totally love it. You can read more at csbible.com. So thank you to CSB for bringing us this particular episode of That Sounds Fun. Today on the show, it's a real honor. You know you know how this world goes, you guys. Either the people on the show are my dear friends or it's someone that I highly respect and want to know. And today's guest kind of mix and mingles the two because Dr. Emerson Egrich is the father of one of my dear friends, Joy Egrich-Reed, who you may know you should be following on Instagram because she is incredible and so funny. She and her husband, Matt, currently live in Paris and I just adore them. And this is her dad, Dr. Emerson Egrich, and who I've long respected for his writing and his thoughts. And and he had a new book come out this summer called Before You Hit Send about how to communicate wisely, face-to-face, text-to-text, all sorts of different ways. Like, what does it look like to really communicate wisely? And it's a great book. It's so smart. I I would put it on the same shelf as Andy Crouch's TechWise Family, just a book that is really trying to help us maneuver with age-old wisdom modern day. And I think it's a really important read. We end up going all over the place. I know you're super shocked, but he just really spoke some great theological wisdom and relational wisdom. And I think this is going to be one of those episodes where you, where it feels like someone, yeah, like a father is kind of speaking to us and helping lead us, no matter your age. But I'm really grateful. So sit down with this one and or on your treadmill. You know, I'm a, I'm a big supporter of that. Or ride in your car. Just let your brain and your heart come to this episode. So here is my conversation with Dr. Emerson Egrich. Okay, so can we start talking about your daughter, Joy, living in Paris? You can start wherever you want. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to respond. Oh, fair. Good answer. (laughs) But do you love that she's over there? Oh, yeah. No, we're delighted that Joy is in France and uh, will be there possibly three years. He works for a French company, and that was part of the criteria for uh, her accepting his proposal to marry that uh, she said, if we go to France, I'll marry you. Yeah, that's right. I love it. It's amazing to watch how well she, I mean, I know that, you know, Instagram story doesn't tell you the whole story, but it is amazing to see that she is finding a lot of fun over there as Joy tends to do. Exactly. And uh, they have the hashtag newlyweds in Paris and there's another couple from America. So they are making the rounds and And uh, it's really kind of an educational thing on Instagram and elsewhere. So it's been fun to watch. Somebody said to Sarah, 
my wife the other day, do you miss Joy? I said, well, I, I, I watch her every 15 minutes. Right. <laughs> That's right. You're probably seeing more of her now than you did before she was doing Instagram when she was in Portland. Precisely. Yep. I feel the same way. I just went back. I used to live in Scotland in 2011, and I just went back about two weeks ago, and I did a lot more Insta story because when I lived there in 2011, we didn't have that. And so it was so, I mean, I remember having, taking pictures and uploading them to Facebook, but nothing like the direct access we have now to be able to show people. I was like, I'm showing people in real time, all my favorite places where I used to go all the time when I wasn't able to show them that. I, technology is absolutely incredible. The FaceTime itself, I mean, it's just remarkable. We live in a, a unique opportune opportunities before us. Uh, so it's, it's very exciting and we certainly benefit from that with joy and you saw it in Scotland. Right. Okay. So your new book that came out this summer hit send is about the power of technology and communication, but I would love for you to kind of talk about when you, because you are, I mean, you know this, but you're kind of the expert on relationship in so many ways with your love and respect. And, and I just would love to hear you talk about how do you see social media helping relationships and how do you see it hurting relationships? Well, it's a two-edged sword. I mean, I, I think to the point that we just made, I mean, we have uh, incredible opportunities now to connect with people, to communicate. I mean, it's so refreshing to see what we're able to do uh, with all the uh, technology that's now being available. It's just going to continue to improve. And so in many ways, communication has the potential of of uh, just improving. I mean, you know, you've heard that expression, the slow boat to China. And uh, missionaries, you know, would have to wait months to get a letter because of the slow boat to China. And so that expression, we don't know historically sometimes, but it just illustrates the long time that passed before uh, correspondence could come. And now it's instantaneous and uh, we're, uh, you know, privileged with this. But of course, the downside we all know is that, uh, you know, everybody's looking at their iPhone. They're not interacting with each other, even though they're sitting next to each other. They're texting each other, even though they're sitting shoulder to shoulder. And people are asking the question, is this going to undermine quality relationships? Are people not able to look at each other? And so I think there is that side that people are burdened about as well. Yeah, I feel that as a single woman, I feel that tension between the ease of connectivity, but also what is it taking away from absence does not make the heart grow fonder because there is no absence anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it's very interesting. No, I mean, there's, that's a wise way of looking at it as well. If, if we're in constant contact, do we fully appreciate? Yeah, I hadn't thought of it from that angle. Uh, silence can uh, actually enrich a relationship if that's what you meant. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I, I think that's the, the slow boat to China idea too, as well as is there was such value in the limited communication you got. And now that seems to, I would never wait for a letter, right? <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine. I can't imagine if that was the only way to communicate with people. The And I do think it probably took a lot more courage for people to move away 100 years ago than it does now. Well, no, exactly. And I think to your point, I think that's why letters uh, that were written in those time periods were so enriching because they were so thoughtful. Uh, every line, you know, was significant. And so that's partly what's driving my book before you hit send, because the concern right now, we are leaving a digital footprint. The idea that we can say whatever we want through the social media and have no consequence is utterly foolish. Everything that we are 
now saying is being recorded somewhere. And uh, the exposure that comes out when we say something that was inappropriate is humiliating and um, uh, discrediting. And so the challenge before us is how do we move forward thoughtfully uh, in this day? World Wide Web means worldwide. And social media means social. And so the challenge is to think more wisely about this. And partly that's why HarperCollins asked me to write this book, because uh, this is a, a huge issue. And people now who are leading businesses will tell you that they don't hire anybody until after they've checked their Facebook. Because though they wouldn't quote Jesus, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And our words reveal our character. And so they are hiring or not hiring based on what they hear this person saying. It's not just political. It's more of, you know, what kind of language is this person using? What are they saying? And this can discredit us quite quickly. So there's a tremendous importance to this topic. You know, when you started doing love and respect, when you started talking about relationships has, I would imagine that technology and social media has drastically changed how you teach people how to honor each other well. Well, it's interesting that the, the, the encouraging thing is that wisdom is unaffected by time in that sense. And so the, the idea of thinking before we speak, which is really what before you hit sin is all about. It's not just the, the digital world that deals with face-to-face encounters or when you're talking to someone on the phone, I talk about face-to-face, you know, um, text-to-text. Uh, there, there are a wide range of ways that we interact with each other voice-to-voice. And so the, the real question is, are there principles that can govern this no matter the age in which we live? And, uh, and that is comforting because I think some of us kind of are, uh, you know, treading water here a little bit. From, well, how, how do we do this? And the book is designed to help people realize, you know, it's not that complicated if we'll just follow these principles or what I have a list of four, a checklist of four, you're, you're going to be okay. And not only will you be okay, you'll be effective as a communicator. And that for me was very important to be effective. That is such an encouraging thought for me personally, as someone who feels like maneuvering, communicating well to people that I love on email or on text or even not publicly, right? Just in privately, just in what's written, there is a lot of peace for me when you say um, that it's timeless truths that we can still plug into the life we have right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not complicated. In fact, one of the points, you know, we learned these things when we were four years old. I mean, what parent didn't say you need to think before you speak, you know? And, uh, you know, certainly... Uh, there isn't anything novel about this. It really raises the question, why do we not do what we know as opposed to, you know, moving forward in areas that we feel like we're in a black hole on? It's really not that difficult. It's not a complex issue. You can be have five PhDs and, or you can never have any formal education. It's really an issue of, of wisdom uh, on proven principles. And I got this when I was a freshman or sophomore at Wheaton in chapel. Someone quoted he attributed it to Socrates that before you speak, before you speak, ask yourself, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And Annie, it was one of those moments where I, I wanted to be an effective communicator. And it's like, bingo. It just kind of hit me deeply. I thought, wow, those governing concepts, if I just remind myself 
is it true? Is that which I'm about to say true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And I've added now over the years a fourth called, is it clear? Because I thought I was being truthful, kind of necessary. And a person would say, what's your point again? I'm not right. following <laughs> right. So, you know, I have a tendency not to be as clear. So those four then, and particularly when I heard it, something clicked for me. And I said, you know what? That's important to me. And in the book that I, I write, there are 81 reasons, though, I offer as to why it is we don't do what we know. Why would I? I know I should be truthful. So the question is, why am I not truthful? I know I should be kind, but why am I not? I know I should say what's necessary, but why don't I? I know I should be clear, but why am I not? And we also know, you know what? It's absolutely necessary that when you talk to me, Annie, that you be truthful, kind, speak what's necessary and clear, because I can't stand it if you were to lie to me, be rude to me, say something I didn't need to hear and confuse me. I call it the golden rule. We really do expect other people to treat us this way, but will we treat them that way? And it raises that question, why would we not do what we expect others to do toward us? So it's replete with significance. And it's interesting that it's not a complicated science, but it does illustrate why we end up um, violating these things, not the least of which is you hurt me, you offend me, I get angry at you, and I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. Right. Yeah, because I would think those four being true, kind, necessary, and clear all feel really like God to me. <laughs> right? Like like God, that's how I feel like we were modeled communication and how Jesus talked to people and how and how God is in the Word. Those are four things that He always is. Well, and we know, Paul, and, and many of us have scriptures that we just kind of remember. We don't know the reference necessarily. But we all say you should speak the truth in yeah, in love. That's exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. So there, there's the first two right there. Right. Truth and kindness. We use the word love, but I use I define kindness as loving and respectful speech. And uh, you know, there's a time to speak and a time. Uh oh, to be quiet. Yeah. Exactly. Not <laughs> all to speak. of a sudden, I, mean, I was like, yeah. I don't know yeah. the right answer. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you you and Joy don't know too much about quietness. That's I understand the problem. That, you know? That's the problem. Yeah, that's the problem. But no, I mean, there's a time to speak and a time to refrain from speaking. It's that yeah. Ecclesiastes, a time to love. You know, we all kind of know that, hey, you know, there's a time to say something and there's a time not to say something. And then, you know, Paul prayed constantly, asked for prayer, that he would speak as clearly as he ought to speak. And you see this this emphasis in some of his epistles about wanting to be clear. And, you know, if I don't speak what is clear, you know, people are not going to understand me. I'm going to be like a, uh, you know, a clanging symbol kind of a thing. And uh, you, you don't understand people if you don't know what they mean by what they're saying. And so uh, from a biblical standpoint, these are some pillars of scripture that we all kind of know in our hearts. So, you know, it raises that question then, why would I not do what I know the Lord really wants me to do and which reflects his character to your point, be truthful, be kind, be necessary and be clear. I would love for you to talk a little more about God's kindness or kindness in general, because that's something that I am working around a lot, is the idea of if God is always kind. Well, it's inherent within his character. Mm -hmm. But one of the things in in the, the whole love and respect message on marriage came from me kind of being a systematic theologian. I'm more of a pastor theologian for laity than I am a marriage expert. I saw something in Ephesians 5.33 that had not been addressed biblically, and so we launched that, and then that became the marriage message. But I tend to be more of a theologian. And But when you ask this question, on the one hand, God is holy and just, but on the other hand, he's loving and merciful or kind. 
So it, it would be inappropriate to say there's a dualism, but that captures the idea. How can God be holy and just and loving and merciful at the same time? How can he you know, be truthful um, on the one hand uh, and kind? You know, uh, how can he be both truthful and loving? And, and, and what we say is, look, if, if you could be truthful with someone, but, you know, hate them. Right. You know? Right. And so, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that because I'm being true that I'm also loving. And you can be very loving, uh, but you end up being accommodating. You don't tell the people the truth because you want them, you know, you, you're trying to be nice. And But both of those are kind of perversions of truth and love. But these things have to kiss each other. And the beautiful thing about the Lord is he is all of that. But now you're asking the question about his kindness. What's behind that question? Oh, that's good. Well, I'm working on, I'm writing about it. I'm writing about how do you believe God's kind when your circumstances don't say that? Okay. So the idea is how do we make sense out of God's character when it doesn't seem that he's treating me very nicely? Yes. Yeah. I mean, if God loved me, I know he didn't perhaps cause the evil, but he certainly allowed it. So really, what's the difference at the end of the day? Right. Yeah. That's kind of where we're trying to go. Yeah. And how do I trust him? in the face of these circumstances that seem to be against me, and is he against me? And that's the Romans 8 passage where uh, when I, I, I preached once on Romans, well, many times on Romans 8, but if you go through Romans 8, we all kind of know Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good. But Paul is making the case that there were so many things that were happening that weren't good, that the believers thought that they were separated from the love of Christ, that God was not for them. He was against them. Some of the believers were being led to the slaughter like sheep. When you read Romans 8.28 in its context, it is a bold declaration that all of these things that are going wrong really ultimately are going to prove to be very good. I mean, but even when Jesus was crucified on Friday, that was a bad Friday. Right. But what did it become? Yeah, good Friday is what we call it. That's exactly right. But that becomes an issue of faith that all of us struggle with that issue that you're talking about. How do I make sense out of God's character, his kindness, his love, when it seems to me that he's either against me or he's indifferent to me? You know, we talk about three things. People say, you know, of these three things, only two can be true. God is all loving, number one. God is all powerful, number two. And evil exists. And the secularist says, we know evil exists. So God cannot be all loving and all powerful in the face of evil, because if he was all loving and all powerful, he would stop the evil. So he's probably just all loving, but he's not all powerful. He's impotent. He cares, but he can't do anything about it. Or he's all powerful, but he's not all caring and loving and kind because, you know, he's not doing anything. So he must be indifferent to us. And that's how people kind of concluded. But Jesus on the cross said God is all loving, all powerful, but evil is real. But it's very difficult for each of us when these sufferings come to, we have to work back. Either God is all loving um, or he's all powerful, but he's not both of these. He's, he's very kind or he's very sovereign, but he, he can't be both of these in light of my suffering. And so we all come to that crossroads where we honestly ask the question, Lord, who are you and do you really care about me? And I see it played out in so many of my relationships because, I, as we all know, I'm nothing like God. You know, he's he is all those things and I'm not. But I see and I go, oh, but I can't be everything you need me to be. And I can't, you know, like 
only God can do this well. But then I find myself asking God questions about why aren't you doing this well? (laughs) Right. I see it. Yeah, I see it in me. And so I was really interested when I was reading the book to be like, oh, like kindness is one of the main things that Emerson believes we are. We should be to each other in communication. And that's one of the things I wrestle with about God. Well, and I see where you're coming from, even in a deeper sense now, based on my concept. And I define con- uh, kindness as love and respect. I, I put it under that umbrella that uh, being kind does not mean you acquiesce to the, the the person, you know, that that. but we communicate the truth in a loving and respectful way. You speak the truth in love, you speak it respectfully. I mean, God is kind toward us, therefore, Hebrews, for instance, says he loves us. Hebrews 12 says he loves us so much that he what? He disciplines us. God is our father and he loves us. And he said, if you're, if you're a child and you're not disciplined, you're, you're kind of an orphan. You know, you're, you're illegitimate is the idea there. And so the point that Hebrews is making is don't interpret the suffering to mean that God is against you. Instead, see this as God being for you and it's an evidence of his love. But that's contrary to where we are in many ways in, in the Western hemisphere that if, if, quote, quote, it appears bad, then therefore it must directly look back at God not caring for me. It would be very difficult for us to say, you know, I've been having some very difficult times recently, some horrendous trials, but this is just evidence to me that, that the depth of God's love for me. People don't think that way. No, no, that's exactly. I mean, that's the challenge, particularly because we are in the Western Hemisphere, right? We are in the part of the world where we feel like we should get everything we want. Correct. But uh, we know in some ways that's just utter selfishness. But I think a a more honest question that you're asking is, look, I'm not trying to be selfish here, but it's kind of like the the old holiness movement, you know, it's kind of, I don't know if it was uh, kind of an Amish or Mennonite, and he was praying one time, and he said, Lord, I, I, I need to tell you, I, I kind of know now why you don't have more friends than you've got. Because, <laughs> Lord, it's the way you treat the friends you do have. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, that's so And good. so many of us, you know, we're not trying to be selfish. We just kind of think, Lord, I'm trying to do everything I'm supposed to, and everything seems to be against me. I'm not really trying to be selfish. I just wish that this was, it felt more fair to me. And I think that becomes then the issue. This doesn't feel just. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's, I mean, I can't tell you how many times in my life my parents have said, my mom particularly would say, no one promised you things would be fair. I'm like, right, but they should be. Correct. (laughs) Correct. That's exactly right. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's really interesting. I just think it's so your wisdom and how relationships work and how that translates into how our relationship with God works is so valuable to me. So thank you for processing through some of that with me. Well, no, I'm, it's an important question. And it's one of those issues today, particularly among the millennials. Millennials filter things through compassion, that you're going to win the argument if you can make the case that you're the most compassionate, right? And so whoever is the most caring, or at least appears, so the trick is you've got to appear caring and compassionate. I mean, that, that's my cynicism on some of this. But nonetheless, it's a worthy concern that who really cares, okay? And so then we have to come to grips with, well, how do we define what caring is? Well, this certainly can spill over into our relationship with God, that at a certain point, we can begin to think, if, if, if God is who certain people say he is, it certainly appears he's not caring some of the Old Testament scenes, and certainly some of the things today that 
that people are concerned about. And if that's who God is, I don't want to have anything to do with him. And I think there's a crisis of faith because there is this idea of how kindness and goodness and love and compassion ought to be applied. And if it's not happening according to our criteria, our criteria, then we become suspect. Yes. I, I mean, I wish I could say I didn't, but I do at times too. I feel that. Well, and certainly there is a place for us to realize this can be Christ-like. You know, people say you shouldn't ask why. Well, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus did not know in his incarnated state some of the things that were going to come at him sideways. He knew he was going to suffer, but I don't think he anticipated, I don't think the Lord revealed to him that there would be a sense of, of uh, forsakenness from the Father. And it was that forsakenness that uh, really took him totally off guard. And we should appreciate that in the incarnation, he, he made voluntary surrender of certain divine attributes. That's why he spent time in prayer. There was a, they, an emptying of himself, according to Philippians. So we have to respect the willingness on his part to become man and to dwell among us. But in that then, there was an element of faith and uh, limitation, though he was fully God, there were times when he didn't kick into his full deity, so to speak. He didn't grab his deity as a thing to be grasped. So he he surrendered these certain divine attributes in the incarnate state. And so on the cross, uh, most of us look at that and realize that was a sincere cry. My God, my God, why? So people who say you ought not to ask why because it's unchristlike, I say the Christ asked why. Yeah, yeah. So how can that be unchristlike when the Christ himself asked why? Once we ask why, we have to ask ourselves, where's this going to lead? Right. Yeah, I heard a pastor recently say not to ask why, to ask God, what do you have for me here? Because you don't usually get the answer you want when you ask why. But I really like what you're saying, that like Jesus clearly modeled we could ask why. And we ought to ask why. There is this uh, honesty about that. You're not going to get answers if you don't ask questions. But then it comes down to this point. Jesus finally said, not my will, but thy will be done in the garden. And also into thy hands, I commend my spirit. He didn't resent the father. He didn't become bitter toward the father. And this is where I see old and young sometimes coming to these moments where they uh, become disillusioned with God. They become bitter toward God because the situation is not resulting in the way that they had expected. And that is an understandable feeling, but the challenge for all of us is this. Will I trust Christ based on what I do understand about him in the face of my unanswered questions? Or will I distrust Christ based on what I understand about him in the face of those unanswered questions? Right. Oh, that's, that's, <laughs> you're, I, I'm bordering between tearing up and thinking really hard. I'm like, yes, I hear you. This is really good. And then what you've done so beautifully in this book is you translate so much of that into how we communicate with the people around us to make sure we're as trusting towards them, right? I mean, in some ways of going like, can I trust you and can you trust me if I'm communicating this well? Well, you've transitioned, segued back to the book, and certainly those comments I made earlier were more theological that I don't unpack in this book. But yeah, I think the when we are communicating, uh, certainly there is a breakdown of communication, particularly if we feel people are unjust toward us, mistreating us. And the question is, you know, why would we not be truthful, kind, in this case, kind? Well, because you hurt me. 
You right, offended me. Right. You angered me. I feel righteously indignant, and so I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. And uh, we go off half cocked. We right. we have this default reaction. You know, when you offend me, my default reaction isn't kindness. <laughs> right. Exactly. But I and I feel that toward the Lord sometimes. I probably shouldn't confess that, but I do. Sometimes I go like, my I am I am not satisfied. I am not feeling very kind back at you today. <laughs> Yes. Well, I think that's the honesty, but again, it comes back to where we end up. That's why the Psalms are so rich, because they start out with this, you know, God, where are you? Why have you rejected me? But they always end in praise. And so part of the challenge is for us to be, you know, we use that expression, honest to God, and I just wish more people were. And certainly you are, and but you don't stay where you start. And don't stay where you start. But this is a, a challenge of maturity. Will we, again, come back to that point where, Lord, I'm going to trust you in the face of what I don't have an answer to because of what I do know about you in the Gospels? And I, through the years of being in an academic town in East Lansing, Michigan State University is there, as a college town pastor, you know, you had the intellectuals as well as everyone else that would come with these questions. And I said, sometimes there's a box with a question mark in it, and we're asking why. And to the pastor's point that you're your pastor, some, the Lord's not always going to answer all of our questions. So in the face of that unanswered question, will I shake my fist at God like Job's wife? Or will I say, as Job did, you know, he blessed the Lord regardless. And uh, each of us comes to that crossroads and which way will Annie turn? Annie has made a decision to ask the question, but at the end of the day, turn her heart toward, Lord, I will trust you uh, because of what I do know about you, even though you're not answering my question. But other people, Annie, they're saying, Lord, I know a lot about you, but because you're not answering my question, I resent you, and I'm going to close off to you. I'm going to become hard-hearted toward you. And this is clearly a challenge for many believers today. Yeah. I think a lot about the people that I'm friends with and the people who, some friends of mine who listen to the podcast that that aren't quite sold on God. And I wonder if that's one of the key problems is they feel like what I do know is hard to process and they miss some of the joys and the goodness of God. Well, particularly a new believer who all they have is their experience. If your right. experience is the 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 ultimate authority, then then you're going to interpret God through your experience. And all of us come to a point where we have to engage the words of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, Paul said, and hearing by the word of Christ. The, and that often verses misquoted, they say, by hearing by the word of God. It's really the word of Christ. And the apostles really focused in on the words of Christ. I was not raised in a Christian home. Oh, I didn't know that. No, I had to come to a point where, um, you know, I trusted the words of Christ as I after I came to Christ and reading the Gospels, and, and reading about this Jesus of Nazareth and the words that he spoke. I mean, for instance, he took, trust in me, trust also in God, and let not your heart be troubled. Well, okay, will I trust in Christ, and will I trust his words? And this is the challenge for the new believer of coming to a point where they don't let their feelings uh, determine their faith. And there is this period, though, where you know, ultimately faith can affect feelings, but that's a mature person. There is this period of time where you're being called to exercise faith while you're having these negative feelings. And so this is a very difficult season because you're new in the faith. Will you trust Christ even though you feel nothing? And some people 
you know, decide they don't want to go that way. But you can remember, I can remember, I'm going to trust you, Lord, though I, I, I don't feel anything and I actually feel the opposite. I'm going to trust you as best I know how. I'm not going to turn my heart against you because I see you on the cross. I see your love for me. I see, you know, the way you lived. I'm going to trust you. Yeah. Yeah. How old were you when you became a believer? 16. How? What, through a church or through a, something else? Well, my mom and dad divorced when I was one. I saw my, they remarried each other. And then I saw my dad attempt to strangle my mom when I was two and a half. And then my dad committed adultery. And then I, when I was around 12, I picked up a butcher knife and told my mom I was going to kill my dad. I wasn't. It was false bravado. But then mom decided I needed to go to military school. So from age 13 to 18, I was at Missouri Military Academy. And while there, a, an elder at a church gave the cadets tickets, those who wanted them to see a Billy Graham film called For Pete's Sake. And I went and I received Christ there. And, uh, and instead, of, I was thinking about West Point, but I went to Wheaton because Billy went there. And then my freshman year, my mom received Christ. My sister, I've got one sister, received Christ. My dad received Christ. And my brother-in-law, who's a professor, received Christ. All four of them came to Christ my freshman year. So we changed at that point as a family. But my woundedness, you know, was such that, you know, I had to work through, you know, these issues. And what I'm giving voice to were things that I struggled with in my early faith. Yeah, sure. That's an amazing story. I had no idea. Joy has never told me that before. That is fascinating. So have you gotten to meet Billy Graham? Did you ever get to meet him? No, I wish I could have, but never had that that honor. Yeah. It is just amazing to think that someone like him, to talk about communication, talk about someone who just get up and got up and did the thing the Lord called him to over and over again. And there's just probably millions of stories like yours of people that he has affected and and has not yet met. That's exactly right. I mean, it's it's endless. I mean, God used him in a great way. We were just talking, Sarah and I, last night about these hymns, great hymns. Uh, and uh, Bev Shea, who he was his vocalist, wrote the song, I'd Rather Have Jesus. And uh, just the history. And they, he sang it 99 times in New York campaign, the crusade there, because it went on for months, just as it did in L.A. back in you know, the, the 50, 40s and 1949, as well as in the 50s in New York. I mean, it was these great movements across this country and hundreds of thousands of people prayed to receive Christ. It's just incredible. And that now you spend your life teaching so many of us how to do community and relationship well. And like we're all grandchildren of his spiritually in a lot of ways. Exactly. That's amazing. Exactly. And all of us. Well, and all of us need to be encouraged, you know, uh, about that because in, in the kingdom's upside down, Billy's got celebrity, but there, each of us needs to trust that we're we're making a, a difference. That you know, the last shall be first, the first shall be last, the humble shall be exalted, the exalted shall be humbled. That the kingdom of God is upside down. What the w- world considers foolish, God considers His wisdom. What God considers wise, the world considers foolish. And we each have to trust that we are making a huge impact, even though, well, I I love Paul's expression, unknown yet known. And what he was saying is that the world didn't know who he was, but he knew that the Lord knew who he was. And so we now know, look back on Paul and realize he impacted the world almost second to, you know, his top five people in the, the world that's impacted, you know, this universe. But at that time he wasn't known and he didn't really care to be known. 
But that should be a source of comfort for each of us listening that we can make an incredible impact. And that's why in part this book, Before You Hit Sin, it's important that we be credible. And I have a desire to be a credible communicator. And this digital footprint we're all leaving out there, if we say things that are untrue, if we come across in hostile and contemptuous ways, if we say things that are not necessary, like a gossip might, if we're not clear in what we're saying, we're, we're discrediting ourselves not to suggest harming relationships. Right. And doing a doing a disservice to any future work in a lot of ways that God could do. You know, not that not that messing up one time or gossiping one time ruins our lives. But if you make a pattern of being a gossip, you aren't going to be trusted. Or if you make a pattern of sending off angry tweets without thinking, you are not going to be trusted. And and it feels like that's what God needs from us as his people or wants from us as his people. He doesn't need us to do anything, I guess, but wants us to be reliable voices on his behalf. That's right. And one of my concerns, I, I challenge people with, do you have enough healthy self-interest? Do you consider yourself worthy enough not to put yourself in a position to discredit yourself? And if you think, that you can go off half-cocked and act in an uncivil way and just get on the internet and just give vent. I mean, the bottom line, if you continue to do that, you really don't see yourself as having any worth or reputation. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, going out and doing that, nor can you, because at the end of the day, we realize that's going to sour people. It is going to turn people off. I mean, you can be right, but wrong at the top of your voice, as we say. And the challenge... The challenge is for us to be thoughtful about this and realize that some of us are unkind because we think bullying people is going to achieve our ends. And yeah, short term, it can. I mean, no one's going to argue with the utilitarian position there. Yeah, you can bully people and get the money out of their pocket. But long term, it'll come back like a boomerang. It will not benefit you long term. And each of us has to have a bigger vision. So when we're communicating, whether it's on the internet, in a text or an email or interpersonally, I talk about face-to-face, voice-to-voice or text-to-text, that each of us has to ask ourselves, why would I not be truthful? Why would I not be kind? Why would I not say what's necessary? Why would I not say what's clear? And I have 81 reasons in the book that causes goodwill people to compromise. For instance, we've said already, when you hurt me or get offended, I get angry. And I don't really want to lash out, but I end up lashing out. But what happens at that point is this can be a very dangerous thing because it not only can damage that relationship, but if that email, if we do so in an email, gets out, you know, I I begin the book, and this is where you're seeing across America so many people suffering the consequences now. But one person wrote something that I started the book out, dance like no one is watching, email like it may one day be read aloud in a deposition. (laughs) Right. That is the truth. (laughs) You have to. I totally agree with that. You know, because that also draws to mind there are so many people today who really feel like, and I I really struggle with this too, Emerson, like using my social media platform to stand up for what's right and what's just. How do we learn how to balance that standing up for what's right and what's just, but not being unkind or not regretting doing that? Well, I think, intriguingly, um, someone who read the book that I wrote, Before You Hit Sin, 
said, you know, when I um, read your title, Before You Hit Sin, Preventing Headache and Heartache, I thought you were going to say in the book that we ought to shut up. Instead, you were saying we ought to speak up. And so to your point, if it's true, if it's kind, if it's necessary, if it's clear, have the courage to speak up. It doesn't mean that the audience is going to receive it. But that's why we don't have to have insecurity because you revisit. Did I say what was true? Did it come across in a kind, loving, respectful way? Was it necessary? And was it clear? And if so, then we must not have regrets. So how do you determine when something is necessary? Well, again, you know, that's where we have to think through. Is this something that's going to be edifying? Is it really needed information? And uh, you have to kind of use your subjective sense at that point. I mean, one of the things we say is, is uh, if it's an interpersonal thing, uh, sometimes we are saying things that the person really has no right to know. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, is this information that my audience has no right to know? And we also talk about the gossip, you know, why do you tell people information that they're not part of the problem, they're not part of the solution? You know, you, there are certain principles that I unpack that help us determine whether it's necessary or not. And we can do this sometimes in innocence. The other day, my COO was saying that she was writing an email to some friends about a friend of theirs who, after four relationships, is now getting married. After four relationships, is now getting married. And uh, she's going on and on about this. And suddenly, she realizes she's divulging information about these three other relationships. And she said, I was giving misleading information. I didn't intend to, but it was giving the impression that this woman didn't know how to do relationships and she's now going to get married and that probably is going to end in divorce, right? Oh, wow, right. So she realized, you know what? That was not my intent. And she hit delete because she said, it wasn't necessary for me to go on about those earlier relationships. It was not germane to the fact that she was getting married. Why was I putting this information in here? And it was done in innocence. It was not, it was just a historical set of comments, but she suddenly realized that was going to be a very misleading set of statements and impugning the character of this woman. And that's just wisdom, right? Like that's just wisdom and time that teaches you when the right time to delete is. Exactly. And also asking, how is this person going to receive this information? How are they going to filter this? How are they going to read this? It's very important. And that's why uh, these criteria have helped me ever since college days. And I think Joy was the one, my daughter, that really drove uh, this uh, book because she knew these principles. I, I try to live by these uh, to govern my speech because it just was too upsetting to me when people you know, would say to me, you know, well, that's not true, or that wasn't kind, or, you know, that's not necessary, or that's not clear. You know, I mean, I can remember saying, you know, I know what I mean, I just can't say it. And someone said, if you can't say it, you don't know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, right. And I just wonder, like, the longer we do this, communicate with people, and the wiser we get, the more we kind of learn. The thing I struggle with sometimes is learning what I'm willing to share versus what other people are willing to share. Like, if I'm sharing someone else's story, I'm like, well, I would have told that if it was my story. And then they go, yeah, but I didn't want you to tell that. Yeah, exactly. Issues of confidentiality. And that's why always, I mean, even in writing, you always get permission to quote somebody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that's standard operating. Whenever I write right. a book, the publishers are saying, did you get them to sign off? Did they sign off? Did you get the original source on this? Because of that very reason. And I think that applies to, you know, sometimes we do it in innocence, you know, just excited about their story. But hey, if it is a a, a story that, 
shares things of a transparent nature that that person could feel embarrassed about, then it's common sense to say, would you give me permission to share that story? And, uh, but we have to remind ourselves of that. And, uh, you know, again, I, I talk about, do you know how every church policy is, is formed? <laughs> because it had to be because something happened that needed it. <laughs> That's exactly right. There was one bad experience. And right. the problem is some of that, you know, you have a policy now in place for three decades. It's really not necessary. But people form policies because of negative experience. That can be a bad thing. It can be a good thing. Right. But part of these principles are here because uh, this safeguards us from hurting people. And this is, you know, a basic Christ-like feature that we need to make sure that we are loving people, caring people. And uh, how do we make sure that we don't, in some ways, rupture these relationships that are important to us? But one thing I also point out in the book, none of us are going to speak perfectly. And so one of the things I say at the end of the book, what if we've hit sin and suddenly we went, oops, (laughs) you know, or we shouldn't have done that. The beautiful thing about our Western society is people are forgiving. We have in our DNA, if you seek my forgiveness, usually, unless it's really an evil situation, most people are very forgiving. So if we say, you know what, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have revealed that. I was so excited about your story, but I, I should have gotten your permission and I can see exactly why you feel the way you do. Would you please forgive me? I am so sorry about that. Most people are very forgiving. What we run up against is when I start justifying it, when I start saying we ought not to feel that way, you know, that's where we then make this thing more difficult than it should. And that's why I challenge people when you hit sin and you realize, oops, uh, then go quickly. Try to make amends quickly. That's a biblical principle as best you can. Doesn't guarantee the other person will forgive you, but that's the best posture to have after we blow it. And all of us are going to blow it. Yes, I know. I mean, I live for the day when Gmail will let me retract an email before it reaches an inbox. (laughs) Well, there are some programs now that I had an interview and they were saying there's some programs out there that that actually do protect you. Yeah. Oh, see, that is what I need to know. It's kind of like, are you sure you want to send this? Or there's a 30 second delay. And uh, there are certain, because of this very uh, heartbreaking headache producing phenomena that we, you know, we, we speak before we think, you know, a woman said, you know, that little thing in the back of your head that tells you not to say something before you say it. Yeah. I don't have that little thing. (laughs) I do. I just don't always listen to it, unfortunately. Okay. So while I've got you, I do. Can we talk a little bit about singleness? Is that an okay topic sure. for us to go to? Because oh, a yeah. good section of my listeners are like me, where they're in their 20s or mid-30s for me and still single. Tell me, what what's the one thing you think I should know about being single in my mid-30s and wanting to be married? What do I not know that I need to know? Well, I wouldn't say that there's nothing that you need to know. I would say, and through the years of my counseling, one thing I've tried to encourage people like you and others is that sometimes we come to a point where we think, you know, wow, what's going on here? But you are here in part because of the godly wise choices you've made, that there is a desire to be married to the right person, to be in the right relationship. And over that period of time, you've had to say, Lord, where are you in all this? But I remind them, you are where you are because you made good decisions. I don't have an answer for why the delay or why God didn't bring, quote, quote, someone in at this point in time. What I do know is that you are suffering for righteousness' sake because of your decision to do the right thing. 
and this has brought God pleasure. And let's just trust together that the Lord's going to honor you. Certainly in the case of Joy, my daughter, you know, she didn't get married until her mid thirties and she longed to be married. And, uh, you know, and the older you get, the people say, well, how old was, was it, you know, the man that she met, you know, and as a father, when, you know, your daughter's marrying someone in their mid thirties, either he's the most godly man on the planet who's never been married or he's a felon. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of how my dad talks to <laughs> Yeah. You know, <laughs> so, you know, but Joy, you know, we were so excited. In fact, she had made out this list of things she wanted in a husband, you know, years ago, about 10 years earlier. And it was a long list of things. And she was evaluating Matt, you know, on the basis of that and kind of saying, well, I don't know if I should or I shouldn't. I said, well, give me the list. And so we went down and every one of them was a check, 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 all of them. Yeah. So I said to Joy, I said, look, let let me say it this way. If you don't marry this guy, I'm going to find him a wife. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) She's never told me that. That is the best. Yep. No, that's true. But I think to your deeper point, the, the single gal or single guy listening who are thinking, you know, is there something wrong with me? I mean, there's there's self-doubt. And one of the things I've said many times, you are in the situation you are because of your wisdom, because of your desire to do what God wanted. I don't have an answer for why the delay is here. This is one of those, why? Why, Lord? Why does it appear you've forsaken me? Why, why are you not listening to me? Which we alluded to earlier. But I, I've encouraged single individuals, let's not question in the dark what we knew was God's will for us in the light. And let's just trust him here. Yeah. Let's trust him. You are the second person to say that to me today. Don't question in the dark what God has shown us in the light. Literally, my friend said that at lunch. That's great. I think one of the things I that is hard for me in my spot is that I am trying to wrestle down this really well and do this life really well while I live fully and do the best with the life God has given me and also still desire what I don't have. And then it's sometimes it's hard to, when I'm so busy doing that and tr- and working hard to do that, to know how to help other single men and women when they say, how do I do this? I just kind of go, I don't know. <laughs> just, just keep doing it. That's all I can tell you. I don't ever, I feel like sometimes I don't have very good wisdom because it's still hard for me. Well, and I, I said to, at the wedding that I performed for Joy and Matt, the, the challenge is to be the mature person that God calls us to be. That's the first point, which they both did. They both sought to be mature individuals in their single life as best they knew how. Secondly, ask God to lead into your life someone who is mature. The second point, and then the third, is to be part of a mission that's bigger than the two of you. And I said Joy and Matt both sought to be mature in their singleness and with all the feelings of inadequacy and all the things that we struggle with but then not compromise on getting involved with someone who's immature. And the beautiful thing is, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, at the end of that chapter, that the widow was free to marry whom she wishes. She was married, her husband died, and so the question was, how should she move forward? Paul was encouraging celibacy, but he said, look, you are free to marry whomever you wish. The idea that women were somehow a second rate? No, she was free to marry whom she wanted, but she was free to do as she wished. In other words, she could marry marry Joseph in the Lord, or she could marry, you know, um, Barnabas in the in, in the Lord. As a Greek, a Jew, she was free, but it's in the Lord. In other words, there's a criteria first and foremost that that person loves Christ, 
And uh, there are criteria that we should be using for our own life. Here's the person God's calling me to be. This isn't about me finding the right person. This is about me being the right person. And when I am that right person, but it begins to be a challenge because people think, well, if I'm not married, does that mean that I'm not mature? And, and that becomes the, the haunting idea that somehow we're doing something immaturely or we're doing something wrong. Yeah, that's exactly. That's such a great phrase. That is haunting for sure. And I challenge people, wait a minute, let's not put a time frame on that. If we honestly say, you know what? Hey, Annie is a mature woman of God. She's not perfect. None of us are, but she's a mature woman of God. So this is not the result of her uh, immaturity. And it, then the question is, well, why has not God led some mature man into her life? Because she longs to be married. And that becomes that unanswered question. You know, we don't have an answer for that. You know, you certainly have a mission that's bigger than yourself. So you're a mature person, part of a bigger mission than yourself. Then why has God not let a mature man who's, who's committed to a mission bigger than himself? And that's where I think many of your audience would be struggling. Lord, why? Which is the earlier thing that we were talking about. And will I trust Christ based on what I do understand about him in the Gospels in the face of an unanswered question? Or will I begin to distrust Christ in the face of what I know about him because of this unanswered question? And you know as well as I do, there comes a moment when somebody just says, you know what, I'm just going to let down my guard. I'm going to hook up with somebody, forget this. It's, and then they end up now having the shame of that encounter, and now it really becomes haunting. So I always challenge, stay the course. We don't have an answer for this, but don't beat yourself up and certainly don't give in because it doesn't seem to be going down the way you expected. Christ himself was celibate. Paul, we think, was celibate. You're in good company. Yeah. Yeah, I, my pastor a couple of weeks ago said, do the last thing you know God told you to do, right? Like if you don't hear anything today, do the last thing you know he told you to do. And so that rings really true to me in my relationships of going like, yeah, I, the last thing he told me to do is run hard after him and after his stuff and what God has for me versus the other option, as you said, of giving up and throwing in the towel and going like, I'm not going to wait on this anymore. I'm not going to wait on a dude. I'm just going to find one and and be fine. And But if I'm doing the last thing God told me to do, it's just it's to draw near to him. Yes. No, I mean, I appreciate your pastor and I certainly appreciate your heart. Well, I'm trying. I am trying. <laughs> I promise. That's the best. about the best I can offer is I'm trying. So, well, hey, there's one last question we always ask on the show, if you don't mind. The show is called That Sounds Fun. And so what I'd love to know is what sounds fun to you today? What's a fun thing that you and Sarah do? What's fun for you on a normal Tuesday? On a normal Tuesday, what is fun? Wow. Well, I mean, right now, for us, it's a little fun. We're at that season of our life where we have our home, but we're adding a little addition on. Oh, nice. And, uh, we've never done that before. Yeah. And uh, we actually met with an interior designer to get some ideas about how to do some things. And both of us are, in our relationship, that's very energizing. We both have been grinning. This is really fun because there are people that are very talented. Yeah. And they can help you do something to create a little bit of a setting and ambiance. So that's more carnal or uh, you know world no, that's great no that's a great answer but, uh, that we were just with a, a person yesterday and we just so we were grateful for this woman who's just incredibly capable and just the joy that that brought to sarah and me as we have been having fun thinking about some interior stuff and uh 
So that came to mind, whether that's righteous yes. or not. Oh, I think that's a great answer. People say all sorts of stuff. Roller coasters, taking a bath, reading a book. I mean, there's lots of answers. Yes. So yes. I love it. I think that's great. Um, well, thank you so, so much for taking time to do this today. I'm just so honored to have you on the show and to hear your wisdom about so many different topics. Well, no, I'm uh, honored and uh, Joy speaks so highly of you. And so we jumped at the opportunity to respond to your invitation. Well, thank you. And listen, we, my small group and I did the um, Illumination Project a couple of years ago and just absolutely loved it. So your oh, work there too is so beautiful. Wasn't that fun? I mean, how many fathers and daughters, you know, I just wish more dads and daughters would do things right, like this. Right, got to Someone do work together to like that. Yeah, yeah. There's Dave Ramsey and and Rachel and others, but, you know, there aren't that many out there. And you, somebody had said that to me. Uh, and so, you know, you look back and think, man, you know, that's true. What a, what a joy. But Joy put all that together and uh, she's powerful. Yeah, it's amazing. Is there anything we didn't get to talk about that you wish we would? Well, there is a, a assessment tool that's free uh, in the appendix that they can assess their communication style and it clusters it together and that's free. And they can... They can find that in the appendix. Oh, that's great. And really, thanks so much for your wisdom. I'm right in the middle of figuring out how to do this well, and it means a lot. Well, thank you. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, married friends, I hope you got some good encouragement about communication. And single friends, I hope you got some good encouragement that we are going to be okay. I know we're going to be okay. We're going to be fine. But I just totally love his wisdom on that. It really spoke deeply to me. So I hope you enjoyed getting to meet him. If you weren't already friends with Dr. Egrich, I... Emerson, Dr. Egrich, I don't know, Joy's dad. I wanted to say Joy's dad. But make sure you grab a copy of Before You Hit Send. And as well, there is kind of an assessment tool in the back of the book to look at how your communication style works. And and so make sure you pick up the book and take that assessment. Hey, make sure you have listened to last week's episode with Luke Norsworthy. Remember, it's a two-parter where Luke and I first are on his podcast and then we're on my podcast. And if you finish both episodes and you tweet Luke and I and we haven't run out of the little gift, the little piece of paper signed by me and Luke and Jason Miller, surprise, you also get Jason Miller, we will mail you one of those. So make sure you tweet at us if you have listened all the way through those episodes. Hey, and I just want to give you a heads up. It's a couple of weeks away, but for Thanksgiving week, we have a really special episode and it is actually going to release on Wednesday so that you can have it for all of your Thanksgiving travels. So make sure you've subscribed to the show so that you don't miss it dropping in for you on Wednesday, November 22nd. And if you get a chance after you subscribed, if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing the shows, that really helps us get in front of faces of people who would be welcome here but don't know that yet. And we would love to have more friends come along. So share this episode with some of your single friends, some of your married friends, anybody who is shooting off emails that they need to have a little more wisdom about. Maybe you should send them this episode as well and let them hear from Emerson himself about how to better handle how we send emails. Hey, if you need me, by the way, sending communication, I'm embarrassingly easy to find. It's Annie F. Downs everywhere. F as in fancy. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you need me. I am easy to find. So what sounds fun to me today, I'm thinking what I'm going to do next. I think I'm going to go to Sonic and get a Diet Cherry Limeade. So that sounds fun to me today. Very simple, but a very lovely part of the afternoon. I mean, it's happy hour, you guys. It's happy hour in Nashville. So I can get my Diet Cherry Limeade for half price, I think. So let's do that. 
So go out there and do something that sounds fun to you today as well. Make sure you grab a copy of Before You Hit Send. And I will see you guys next week.